Good morning. My name is Diane Brooks, and I am so happy to be here and so delighted that for the last few months I've had these three chapters to study, and it's a joy for me to share with you the things that I've learned through the scriptures and um, just pray that the Lord will open all of our hearts so that we can apply these words to our lives. If you will pull out the maps that you got a few weeks ago, in just a minute, you're going to um, see the route that Paul and Silas and Timothy traced on their second missionary journey. So the second missionary journey of Paul may be summed up as beautiful responses of faith accompanied by extreme opposition and persecution. God's Spirit redirects Paul and Silas to Macedonia, or Europe, through the vision of a man dressed in Macedonian attire, the vision was not a dream, although it was delivered at night. A man of Macedonia was probably an angel, attired in the Macedonian habit or clothing, or using the language of the country. Help us against Satan, ignorance, and sin. This message was given to them as an inward impression or a directive. The country that we know today as Greece was in New Testament times actually two Roman provinces. Macedonia was in the north, and Achaia was in the south. This is a significant moment in Christian history, as the door was opened for Paul to take the gospel from Asia into Europe. Verse 19 says, We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to the people there. This is the first time Luke the author of Acts, mentions his own name or any one thing he did for the service of the gospel throughout the book. He says, we. There they encounter a single businesswoman who is a seller of purple, a slave girl who could foretell the future, and a prison guard who feared for his life. What do these people have in common? The lives of these people were personally changed as they encountered the living word of God. Their stories prompted the spread of the gospel and changed hearts. The details of their stories are all important. So let's dig in to see what these accounts may teach us. And I'm not sure if I said my name. I'm Diane Brooks, and I've been part of Habits for a number of years and truly blessed by this ministry. I'm the wife of Paul, and the mother of Katie and Carly, twins who are 17, and still a joy in our lives. All right, so let's look at the map. And I have to give special thanks to Susie Everett in the back. She was able to work magic on this. Try clicking it again if you can to see if it pops up. Thank you. So if you watch carefully, you can see the route that the missionaries took. That's the first journey and then the start of a second journey from Asia on up into Greece or Macedonia. And then you can see the route as they start to return from Athens and down back to Jerusalem. Pretty cool, huh? Now there's also a simplified map because I know that's pretty quick. So we're going to switch to that so you can see um, more clearly the cities. There you go. 
So Philippi was the first stop in the second missionary journey. It's located near the northern coast of the Aegean Sea. To arrive there, Paul and company set sail from Troas and made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. That was a journey of about 100 miles. Neapolis is known today as Kavala in Greece and was the beginning point for those who wished to travel the Via Ignatia, a great Roman military highway that journeyed some 490 miles across Macedonia and linked the Adriatic with the Aegean Sea. From there, they traveled about 10 miles inland to Philippi. Philippi was known as a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. A Greek historian described Philippi as the gate between Europe and Asia. In Philippi, Paul preached the gospel on European soil for the very first time. As was Paul's custom, where no synagogue was present, he went to the river, knowing that is where the God-fearers gathered to pray. There he met Lydia, a seller of purple. I've always liked the story of Lydia. She was an impressive woman. She was a business person who had significance in her town and influence over her family. But I wondered, why was the detail that she was a seller of purple included in this narrative? Why was she not called a seller of expensive silks and other exotic fabrics? Why not ruby fabrics or emerald or azure blue? Why purple? Once I began to research, I quickly discovered that purple indeed was a very special color. In those days, there were no synthetic dyes. Dyes were derived from natural substances like plants and food. Purple, however, came from a very tiny crustacean, a mollusk about the size of the tip of a finger. The shells were crushed together so that a type of gel was released from the body of the mollusk. It took 8,000 of these shells to produce one gram of purple dye. The Jews called the shellfish chalcin. So purple was highly valued as silver in those times. It was the color of the Roman elite. The more purple one wore, the higher one standing. Only the emperor or the king would possess the wealth to own an entire garment of purple. To own even a fringe dyed purple showed one's affluence. People could, sorry, purple could only be purchased from an approved person or one authorized for that purpose. The dyes had to be genuine so that the color would hold and not change. So when I read Mark 15, 17, that says, And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. I gasped, because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they put an entirely purple robe on him. The significance of placing that purple robe on him is now striking. Jesus was adorned in the robe of a king. And I brought a piece of purple. Just, I've kind of been drawn to this color my whole life. When I was a teenager, my parents, like so many, allowed me to paint my room, and it was this color. <laughs> and back then, um, fishnets were really popular. Don't ask me why, but we hung them on the wall and then attached shelves to them. So the whole thing kind of fit for me that Lydia was a seller of purple and the purple came from these tiny crustaceans or shellfish. 
So what else do we know about Lydia? She was a woman of prayer. In Philippi, there was no synagogue, so the people who worshiped God gathered at the river to pray. Lydia's heart was open to the things of the Lord. She received the message of Paul and requested to be baptized right away. Lydia had influence over the rest of her family, and they were baptized as well. She was hospitable. After being baptized, Lydia invites Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, and the others into her home to stay with her. She was ready and organized to entertain guests. What a blessing to the weary travelers to have a place to stay and for Lydia and her family to continue to learn from the men of God. Lydia's open-hearted generosity demonstrated the reality of her conversion. I had to ask myself, if I met someone in need, would I be ready and willing to immediately open my home to allow them to come in? As women, we feel that our homes are a reflection of us. Too often, we want everything to be perfect before we're willing to invite others in. We miss out on opportunities to be used by God because of our hesitancy to share our homes and ourselves with others. If you're like me, you think, okay, once I get this done and this done, then I'm ready to have people over. When Paul and Silas are later miraculously released from prison, they return to Lydia's home. They knew they would find believers waiting there for them. Lydia was again allowing her home to be used by the Lord. An interesting note I found in my study was that a woman was not mentioned by personal name in public unless she was either notable or notorious. Lydia was definitely notable, someone who I will look forward to meeting someday in heaven. Next in our narrative, we meet the slave girl with the spirit of divination. She followed Paul and Silas and us, or Luke, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She did this for many days. Paul used the authority given to him by Jesus to speak directly to the Spirit, commanding him to come out of her. He did not want it to mislead the people that this girl with her ability to tell fortunes was a partner in the gospel. The English Standard Version Bible describes the girl's demon as giving her the ability to tell people secrets about their lives. In today's language, we might call her a fortune teller. The evil spirit immediately left her, enraging her owners. Her ability to earn money for them was gone. One of the writers indicates that Paul's concern with the slave girl was that she was saying these things under the influence of an evil spirit and was confusing his pagan audience. Her claims could have easily been misunderstood. The people hearing these words might have imagined that Paul and Silas were possessed by spirits from the underworld just as she was. The slave girl was released from the power of evil and drawn near to the kingdom of God. We do not know if she turned to Christ, the one who released her from the power of darkness. She was abandoned by her owners and was perhaps cared for by the community of believers. The enraged owners seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers claiming, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. 
The Jews were particularly despised by the Romans. The scriptures say that the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. The magistrates exercised both military and civil authority. They had Paul and Silas stripped and had their assistants beat them with rods. The rods were pieces of wood that were strapped together, so this was really painful. The assistants carried wooden rods that were bound together. Paul and Silas were severely beaten, and the rods left red stripes on their bare skin. This sequence of events was a severe miscarriage of justice. Paul and Silas were not allowed a trial or the opportunity to defend themselves. In 1 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. He goes on to say, So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul and Silas kept their eye on the prize. Their goal was to please God, not man, or that they could have easily been discouraged in their mission. Paul and Silas were thrown in prison, not the normal prison, but the inner prison, and their feet are placed in wooden stocks. The stocks kept their feet extended in a severely painful position. They were round and only a part about this much. So when their feet were extended, the blood flow to the rest of their body was nearly cut off and they weren't able to move their legs. The jailer was instructed to guard them carefully because of the supernatural powers they had displayed. Yet how did they respond? They sang and praised the Lord. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine the words of praise echoing off the stone walls of the prison? The prisoners must have been wondering, how could these men who had been publicly stripped and beaten with rods be worshiping the God whom they served? Where does the strength and the hope come from? This is truly not a human response. There's something different and compelling about these men. Then the walls of the prison shook and the ground begins to move. The foundations of the prison are shaken. All the doors of the prison are opened and everyone's bonds are loosened. An earthquake has provided a means of escape. But what is their response? No one leaves the prison. Paul and Silas choose to remain in the prison to save the life of the jailer. In those days, whenever a prisoner escaped, the jailer or the soldiers guarding the prisoner would lose their lives. The outcome of their escape was certain. In the dark of the prison, Paul is sensitive to the fear of the jailer and calls out loudly to him, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brings them and utters the most beautiful words. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. The jailer calls them sirs, an indication of the respect he had for them. He was humbled with an openness to learn more about the God they served. 
In the middle of the night, he takes Paul and Silas to his house to be cleaned and to attend to their wounds. He removes the stripes from their wounds. There's a parallel here. The stripes from this jailer's sins are also removed. By his wounds, we are healed. We who have placed our trust in Christ are healed from our sins by the wounds Jesus received before dying on the cross. The jailer's response is immediate. He did not seek to do what was convenient, wait until morning to allow everyone to get some sleep, or what was safe, to be secretive and quiet about what he was doing. No, his entire household was awakened and baptized before dawn. He brought Paul and Silas to his home and set food before them. This all occurred in the middle of the night. The great fear that the jailer had of punishment for allowing the prisoners to go free, was totally overwhelmed by the gospel message and his new faith in Christ. His joy in hearing the gospel was real and transforming. The jailer went from a man who was deathly afraid of losing his prisoners and ready to take his own life to a man transformed by the life-changing knowledge of Jesus Christ and ready to make his faith known. Is this one of those echoes of Jesus that Drew Hunter spoke of in the books of Acts? The wounds of Christ, the stripes inflicted upon Paul and Silas, the stripes of sin being removed from the heart of the jailer. When the earthquake came, Paul and Silas could have quickly left the confines of the prison, deciding that this was their get-out-of-jail-free card. Instead, they were so in tune with the Spirit of God that they remained to save the life of the jailer. This too was an echo of Jesus, who became a bondservant, who chose to stay bound to this earth, who emptied himself and humbled himself, even to the point of death to save the lost, us. Jesus chose to be bound to this earth and the limitations of humanity, enduring hunger, torture, disappointment, temptation, and ultimately separation from God for our benefit, for our good, to give us eternal life. Peter provided a clear echo of Christ when he wrote in 1 Peter 2, 19-21, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 24 reads, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Thank you, Lord, for that amazing sacrifice. The conversion of the jailer is significant because he was a member of the oppressive system that was persecuting Paul and Silas. For both Lydia and the jailer, the entire family unit was blessed when the head of the house turned to Christ and acknowledged Jesus as Lord. God blesses family units under the new covenant just as he did for the nation of Israel. 
Paul sought the public apology from the officials, not to get even, but to preserve and protect their mission. In leaving Philippi, Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians that's characterized by joy. Because of the sweet community he experienced with them, the times of worship with Lydia and her household, the middle-of-the-night meal with the jailer and his family, followed by baptism of them all. These people were dear to Paul's heart. Their lives and the lives of those around them were changed. Paul wrote in the beginning of Philippians, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers of, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So on to Thessalonica. From Philippi, Paul and company traveled 94 miles to Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia. Thessalonica had a population of over 100,000 people. It boasted a natural harbor and prime placement on the Ignatian Way, establishing it as a flourishing center for trade and philosophy. It was a free city and had a sizable Jewish population. Paul continued with the strategy of going to the synagogue first to preach to the Jews and Gentile God-fearers. Their background and education included knowledge of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the concept of the Messiah. The Old Testament predicted both the suffering and the resurrection of the Messiah. This Jesus, who rose from the dead, was Israel's promised Messiah. Paul preached to the Jews for three Sabbaths, or three weeks. A number of the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles believed. Paul then spent several fruitful weeks ministering to the pagan Gentiles. He and the other missionaries were eventually forced out of the city prematurely when the Jews formed a mob and attacked the house of Jason, where Paul and his group were staying. A few months later, Paul sent Timothy back to check on the fledgling church. Paul writes to the Thessalonians a letter to exhort and encourage them, saying, this is 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and you became imitators, sorry, imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. And Berea next. Paul and Silas fled to Berea, 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica. Unlike the Jews in Thessalonica, the Bereans were open-minded about receiving the word. Luke writes, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They allowed the standard of scripture, rather than their own pre preconceived notions, to test the message that Paul shared. The Jews from Thessalonica were persistent in their persecution and followed Paul to Berea. They agitated and stirred up the crowds. 
the brothers sent Paul off by sea, and Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. Paul went alone to Athens. Athens was the center of intellectual influence of the ancient world. It contained 10,000 people. It was smaller than the other cities where Paul spoke, but it was one of the leading cities of the whole Roman Empire. The other two were Ephesus and Corinth. All three cities were located around the shores of the Aegean Sea. Athens was known as the birthplace of democracy. It was the home to three famous universities, Alexandria, Tarsus, and Athens. The brightest students flocked to it from all parts of the empire. It was in Athens where Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno taught their philosophies. Paul was repelled by what he saw there. The worship of idols was everywhere. Petronius asserted that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. The Greek statues were beautiful, but were just lifeless idols. To understand Paul's approach to the people of Athens, we must understand the dominant philosophies that were espoused by the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed in pursuing a life free from pain. They believed in gods, but thought that the gods were completely detached from humanity. The gods had a blessed and undisturbed existence. They were not involved with man. The Epicureans did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe one could anger the gods or face judgment. Thus, they had a strong reaction when Paul talked about the resurrection and future, just, future judgment. Those thoughts were totally foreign to them. They were not hedonist or self-indulgent. Pleasure to them was avoiding disturbances in life, not following after amusements. Stoics, on the other hand, thought that reason or the logos controlled the universe, but people were responsible for their voluntary actions. They rejected the Epicurean view of pleasure and instead stressed virtue. In Paul's message to the Greek philosophers, Paul describes a God unlike any other, bigger and greater than any God the Greeks had ever imagined. Creating the world, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man or served by human hands. He does not need anything since he gives all to mankind. Life and breath, everything. He made from one man every nation and determined the time that we would live on earth and the boundaries of their living places. Yet even though God is creator, great and powerful, he's not far from each one of us. Imagine a personal God, one who loves us and cares about the details of our lives. He is involved and not just an observer of our world. In him we live and move and have our being. Paul uses the words from two Greek poets that his audience would have known. In him we live and move and have our being. That was from a poem about Zeus written by Epimedes. For we are indeed his offspring comes from a poem written by the Stoic Aratus. This was not an endorsement of their view of God. Rather, Paul used familiar language that coincides with revealed truth. He establishes common ground with them. Paul's message goes on. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world. What was their response? 
Some mocked when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Others wanted to hear more. Still others joined him and believed, including Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. Paul was clear in establishing the importance of the resurrection to the gospel message. He teaches that the resurrection is at the center of God's plan for history. It's the basis of hope for the future resurrection of the body. The resurrection provides the central evidence for our belief in Christ. It places Jesus at the right hand of God, showing his authority to be the judge and the giver of salvation. Athens was indeed a beautiful city. There were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. A gold and ivory statue of Athena stood in the Parthenon, and it's said that her gleaming spear point could be viewed 40 miles away. So there's a photo of a modern-day statue of Athena. This is a reproduction, uh, because there are no pictures from that day, but a reproduction that is in Nashville, Tennessee. And Nashville, believes it, believe it or not, considers itself the Athens of the South. So when they celebrated their 100-year centennial, they built a Parthenon, and in it they contracted with an artist to build this Athena statue. And if you look, you see the man standing beside her. That gives you a sense of how big she was. And it was said that the gold and the bronze, the brass, the ivory, and the silver that were put into the statue in Athens contained most of the treasury of the whole city. That's how much they revered those gods. All of the gods of Olympus were there in Athens. Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana. They were made by the finest Greek sculptures, sculptures of gold, silver, ivory, marble, stone, and brass. Paul saw that beauty, but instead of being drawn to it, he was repelled. He saw it for what it was. The idols represented man-made ideas of gods. The Greeks were worshiping their own creations. God's gift of the ability to create beautiful things was being distorted in the creation of false gods. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Our creator and redeemer has a right to our exclusive allegiance. He claims that for himself. It should not be transferred to anyone else. We should also be jealous for God's name to want it to be protected. Stott writes, whenever he is denied his rightful place in people's lives, we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. After studying this and kind of meditating on it, I had to think, how do I respond when I see things in this culture that do not honor God? Am I willing to draw the line and to speak out? Am I aware when I let my own vision become obscured by the things of this world? How can I keep this from happening? To not allow anything or anyone to become an idol in my life, even my husband or my children. When I was first married, I found it was easy for my thoughts to be consumed with my husband allowing them to move me away from my relationship with the Lord. I depended on Paul too much, expecting him to meet all my needs. That was an expectation that was impossible for him to fill. 
What other idols are in our lives? Is it the approval of others, material wealth, comfort, status in the community, to be popular or to have influence, to have the smartest kids or the most athletic, or the ones that seem to have it all together? Is our idol found in achievement, advanced degrees, hitting job goals? The true measure of an idol is what place does it take in my life? Does that pursuit or that person come before my love and obedience to God? Am I not doing what I'm called to do because I'm protecting my desire for comfort or ease of life or even just the desire to be entertained? Philippians 4.8 draws me back to the truth of the scripture. It says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When we saturate our minds with these things, it becomes much easier to quickly discern the things that hinder our growth in Christ and can quickly become idols in our lives. Only the Lord can completely satisfy our inner longings to complete us and fulfill us. He who knows us best loves us the most. He knows everything about us, the parts that still need to be changed, the misses and the good, the attitudes and actions that bring him glory. Well, Paul then goes from Athens to Corinth, a city of 750,000 people, where he meets Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Corinth was a great commercial center and a world-famous emporium. By sailing by way of Corinth, ships could save 200 miles of perilous travel around the southern tip of the peninsula. Corinth boasted two harbors and two ports. Its population consisted of seafarers and maritime merchants, a rough crowd. <laughs> Poseidon, the Greek god of the sea, was worshipped there. Some of the items one might find in the market in Corinth were Arabian balsam, Egyptian papyrus, Phoenician dates, Libyan ivory, Babylonian carpets, Sicilian goat's hair, wool, and slaves. Corinth was also widely known for its immorality. It pervaded the city. There's a picture of Aphrodite, or Venus, the goddess of love, and it rose 2,000 feet above sea level. A thousand female slaves served this goddess by roaming the streets at night, every night, as prostitutes. It's significant that Paul focused on preaching the good news to the Gentiles. God confirmed Paul's decision by allowing his efforts to quickly bear fruit. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The Lord appeared to Paul one night in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this, in this city who are my people. Paul stayed with the Corinthians a year and six months. The Lord here refers to Jesus saying these things to Paul to offer reassurance and protection. 
Paul was to continue witnessing, fortified by the presence and protection of Christ, and by the assurance that Christ had in Corinth many people. The Old Testament word for Israel now extended to include Gentiles. They had not yet believed in him, but they would do so, because according to his purpose, they belonged to him. Ephesus. Ephesus was a city of 500,000 people, and it was also importantly known for its commerce. Barclay calls it the market of Asia, Asia Minor. It had political importance as the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Ephesus was one of the principal religious centers of the Greco-Roman world. And you'll see the Temple of Artemis here. It contained this temple, who the Romans also called Diana. She was a virgin hunter, but in Ephesus she had become identified with an Asian fertility goddess. Her temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It was adorned with more than 100 ionic pillars, each 60 feet high and supporting a white marble roof. It was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens and contained many beautiful paintings and sculptures. Paul followed his approach to used in other cities by first reaching out to Jew Jewish hearers in the synagogue. When the gospel was rejected there, Paul appears to the Gentiles. In a dramatic moment, Paul shook out his clothes in protest so that not a speck of dust from the synagogue might adhere to them. He echoes Ezekiel when he says, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We thank God that Paul continued to share the life-changing truths of the Gospels with the Gentiles because that comes down to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the life-changing message of the Gospel and how you care about all the details of our lives and how even a color purple can make a huge difference. We thank you for the, the, the jailer and for Lydia, for Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, for your faithful witnesses throughout history and for the great host that will await us in heaven. Lord, thank you for each woman that's here and for the purpose that you have them here. And I pray that as we continue to study your word in our groups, that our hearts would be drawn closer to you and that we could rejoice that we know you as a savior and that we don't have to worship idols that are far from us and that are lifeless and that were created by our own hands, but that we know the true and living God who was resurrected from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.